You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I'd be listening to the mainstream media and just be left frustrated on how they covered these stories. They would completely ignore facts just to promote their own agenda. I said, man, I could do a better job than these fools. I should start my own show. So I did. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Freedom Strips. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Uh, My name is Keaton Tucker. I am your host. And this show is recorded on September the 12th. Now, there have been a lot of news stories that I did want to cover, but um, I thought that since we did pass a very important day in this country, we just passed September 11th, um, and I'm sure yourself, uh, along with myself and and others that we know, um, this is a very important day in our country, and it should be remembered, and we should remember um, the heroes and the first responders that did um, respond to the attacks on 9-11. We should remember the family. We should mourn with them because it, it was, it was a tragic day in this country. And, um, it, it is important to take time out of our day to, to remember those people. And, um, so I did that. I'm sure everyone else did as well. Um, but it, it is a time of reflection also, so I thought that it would be important to, I, I did listen to several podcasts yesterday, you know, um, most of them, you know, covering the event and in, in some shape or form, um, some focusing on the heroes and the stories, uh, that came out of that day. There, there were some amazing people that, um, did some amazing acts and saved who knows how many lives, thousands of lives that day, um, because of individuals who were brave enough to go and, um, evacuate people out of the towers, firemen, uh, first responders, even people within the towers when they got hit, you know, people stepping up to the challenge, um, disregarding their own safety to save others. And there's some amazing stories out there, but it is important to reflect on the event itself. Um, especially in the time we're in now where we are still, fighting a war um, that was birthed from the attack on 9-11. Now, like I said, I was listening to several podcasts that that went over different stories and things like that, but I also listened to some that reflected more on the... How should I say this? More on the... uh, the foreign policy aspect, like what were the causes? How could this have happened? And what can we do as a nation to stop something like nine 11 from ever happening again? So one of the podcasts that I'm going to be covering as I've done in some previous episodes before is Ben Shapiro's podcast. Um, I, I know I pick on Ben Shapiro, uh, fairly often. I, as I've said before, I actually, I I like Ben Shapiro on a lot of stuff. Um, but he does get things wrong and I get, I'm sure I get things wrong as well. Uh, In fact, I know I get some things wrong. I'm not perfect. Um, but you know, there's some points in Ben Shapiro's latest episode that I think he gets wrong as well. And, uh, so this is going to be a little bit of a Contra Shapiro episode, uh, a heavy Shapiro episode. So, Keep that in mind as we move forward. But uh, I, I did want to say that, uh, you know, if you are listening and you are a first responder, thank you for your service, as well as if you were a first responder during that time at 9-11 and you, for some reason, happen to be listening to my podcast, thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you do. It's a debt that can never be repaid. So with that said, Let's move forward to the Ben Shapiro podcast. Now, I will say, let me say this at the top. Ben Shapiro does a good job at outlining um, how important of an event 9-11 was. I know where his heart is. It has the best of intentions in it. I'm not denying that at all. I'm simply denying that. Well, let's just go ahead and get into why what I have a problem with it. So. 
jump on in. Save people. We all remember the firefighters who were there for cleanup, many of whom have gotten disease since because of all the all of the asbestos and, and soot and dust in the air. We all remember the soldiers who stood up and volunteered, people who are far braver than I was, who stood up and, and said, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight the bad guys over there so they never come over here. And it's important to remember those things because how you view 9-11 as a natural outgrowth of an isolationist foreign policy or as an aberration in American history, it's just something weird that happened that one time, shapes how we see foreign policy in the United States today and how you reacted to 9-11 and how we react now to remembering 9-11 is indicative of where the future of American foreign policy lies. Because it seems to me that in the United States right now, there is this long slide back into the post-Cold War, pre-9-11 mentality on foreign policy, which is that the United States should retreat from the world. The United States has no place in the world, that a, a stronger United States is more likely to draw the attention of bad guys all over the world. If we sort of left the world alone, the world would leave us alone. And 9-11 was a reminder that that wasn't true, because the fact is that the, the Clinton administration had been extraordinarily non-forthcoming in terms of interventionism. In fact, the only real interventionist acts they took were on humanitarian levels, right? They did that in Yugoslavia. They did that in Somalia. They did that a little bit in Sudan. But the, the Clinton administration... So I want to stop it right here. Um, <clears throat> several points here that I wanted to talk about. Um, first off, you will notice a trend in the several clips that I'm going to play from this podcast episode is that Ben Shapiro... Um, multiple times makes references to 9-11 being caused by some sort of isolationist view on foreign policy, some isolationist practice on foreign policy. That's what caused 9-11 being isolationist as if the United States has ever been isolationist. Um, so I'll, I'll tackle that here in just a little bit. Um, second, the point that Bill Clinton was somehow, he wasn't involved, that the United States wasn't involved in any kind of uh, foreign, they weren't involved in any foreign politics. The United States was just on its own, not bothering anyone when the attacks happened. Well, that's just simply not true. He, you know, he goes on to lists um, Somalia and all the different places that the United States were in, Saudi Arabia, Syria, you know, we've been in, involved in Iran at that time as well. So the United States was involved in several places, including, get this, Iraq. So he talks about Bill Clinton not being involved in, you know, being very uh, closed off and not getting involved in any kind of foreign actions. So I don't know why this doesn't come to mind, but the first thing that I think about with Bill Clinton is, so Bill Clinton's sanctions on Iraq, the UN said that that killed over 500,000 children. Half a million children died as a result of Bill Clinton's sanctions on Iraq. So Bill Clinton's secretary of state at the time in 1996 was asked in an interview on 60 Minutes if she thought that half a million children's lives were worth it in their foreign policy advancement. Half a million children died. Is it worth it for what you're trying to get out of this? Listen to our response here. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. So, Madeleine Albright, half a million children dead. You know, if you're trying to conduct some sort of point to another country, some sort of sanction against another country to impose your will on them, is 500 children, 500,000 children's lives worth it at that point? If you kill half a million children... What you're trying to do is, is, is it even worth it? Yes. Madeleine Albright thinks so. So that was done under Bill Clinton. So I don't know where Ben Shapiro is getting his facts, but let me give you a fact here. Osama bin Laden listed that, those sanctions in one of his, the, that was located in his letter to America on two, in 2002, he explicitly stated 
that event, the sanctions on Iraq that killed 500,000 children in Iraq as one of the reasons why he planned the attacks on 9-11. Now, other reasons that he uh, included for Al-Qaeda's motives for the attacks were Western support for attacking Muslims in Somalia. You heard Ben Shapiro reference Somalia. Supporting Russian atrocities against Muslims in Chechnya. Supporting the Indian oppression against Muslims in Kashmir. Jewish aggression against Muslims in Lebanon. And the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. Those were the reasons that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda planned the attacks on 9-11. I mean, it is... It is what it is, but those are the facts there. Let's continue. But the, the Clinton administration was certainly not a, a, an aggressive, hawkish administration. Bill Clinton rapidly cut the military such that the military was simply not ready to do a two-front war by the time 2003 came around. And as a result of the United States abdicating its duty around the world in the aftermath of the Cold War with the assumption that the vacuum would, would not be filled by bad guys, the vacuum was indeed filled by bad guys. And we saw a spate of terror attacks leading up to 9-11 that should have been indicative that something like 9-11 was going to happen. We saw the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. We saw the bombings of the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia in 1996. We saw the bombings of American embassies in Tanzania and Kenya in 1998, 1999. We saw the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000. And then, of course, we saw the massive World Trade Center attacks. And that was the, the final straw that woke America from its reverie. And in a second, I'll remind you, exactly what that was like, what President George W. Bush had to say at the time, a time when America was unified and, and there was a realization, this brutal realization that the world's problems would come here if we were not actively fighting them off away from our own doorstep. We'll get so it's precisely because we were there for the reason they came here. Bin Laden said that himself in the letter to America stating why he carried out the attacks, why they planned the attacks on 9-11. I read them earlier. Western support for attacking Muslims in Somalia. Atta- uh, re- Russian Supporting Russian atrocities against mus- Muslims in Chechnya. Indian oppression against Muslims in Kashmir. Uh, troops in Sa- U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. The U.S. sanctions on Iraq that claimed 500,000 children lives. That's what he listed as his reasons. So it's precisely because we're involved over there that they plan the attacks here. So I don't know. That argument doesn't hold water for me. Ron Paul talked about this when when he ran for president back in 2008. He talked about how the CIA was correct in their assertion that getting tangled in these foreign politics, especially the delicate and highly combustible nature of, of Middle Eastern politics, um, would cause what the CIA called blowback. I, I think I've played this clip before, but I think it's worth hearing again. Let, let's take a listen to this. Congressman, you, you don't think that changed with the uh, 9-11 attacks, sir? What changed? The non-interventionist policies. No, it, it, non-intervention was a major contributing factor. Have you ever read about the reasons they attacked us? They, they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years. We've been in the Middle East. I think Reagan was right. We don't understand the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. So right now we're building an embassy in Iraq that's bigger than the Vatican. We're building 14 permanent bases. What would we say here? if China was doing this in our country or in the Gulf of Mexico, we would be objecting. We need to look at what we do from the perspective of what would happen if somebody else did it to us. Are you suggesting we invited the 9-11 attacks, sir? I'm, I'm suggesting that we listen to the people who attacked us and the reason they did it. And they are delighted that we're over there because Osama bin Laden has said, I am glad you're over on our sand because we can target you so much easier. They have already now, since that time, have killed 3,400 of our men, and I don't think it was necessary. Wendell, may I make a comment on that? That's really an extraordinary statement. It's an extraordinary statement as someone who lived through the attack of September 11 that we invited the attack because we were attacking Iraq. I don't think I've ever heard that before, and I've heard some pretty absurd explanations for September 11.
I would ask the congressman to withdraw that comment and tell us that he didn't really mean that. Congressman? I believe very sincerely that the, that the CIA is correct when they teach and, and talk about blowback. When we went into uh, Iran in 1953 and installed the Shah, yes, there was blowback. Uh, the reaction to that was the taking of our hostages, and that persists. And if we ignore that, we ignore that at our own risk. That if we think that we can do what we want around the world and not incite hatred, then we then we have a problem. They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. I mean, what would we think if we were uh, if other foreign countries were doing that to us? Can I have 30 seconds, please? No, no, no. Wait a second. Let's so I, I think he brings up a great point. What would we think if another country did the same thing to us? I mean, take take the the uh, Iraq sanctions under under Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright saying that five hundred children, five hundred thousand children lives were worth it. I mean, if another country put sanctions on America, if we were in a position to have sanctions put on us that cost five hundred thousand children to die. And then we heard the leaders of that country, the people in charge, say that it was worth it to get what they wanted out of it. Uh, What would we think? I I think it's foolish to ignore that that line of thinking. So let's continue with uh, what Shapiro has to say. That message. Now, later, obviously, this would all turn very political and people would suggest that the Bush administration botched the invasion of Afghanistan. And then they would suggest that the war in Iraq was completely fruitless and pointless. And, and this all shattered on the, on the shoals of war in foreign places. But the fact is, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was a tremendous unity in the country on the basis of we cannot sit around and hope that the rest of the world will leave us alone. President Trump spelled out the changes in American foreign policy. President Bush did. He, he spelled out the changes in American foreign policy. And he talked about what an American response would look like. He said it would involve more than simple case-by-case retaliation and isolated strikes. Our response involves far more than instant retaliation and isolated strikes. Americans should not expect one battle, but a lengthy campaign, unlike any other we have ever seen. And we will pursue nations that provide aid or safe haven to terrorism. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. And that line obviously became this sort of rallying cry for the left. Oh, look at that binary view of the universe. But the reality is that if you are not with the United States in its war on Islamic radical terrorism, then you were on the other side. There is no there is no sort of neutrality in that particular battle. George W. Bush was right. So this had me kind of thinking if if that is true, um, if this kind of view that if you're with if you're not with us you're with them mentality if that's the right way to look at things I, I, this was just something that kind of went into my head how would someone that believed that view how would they look at say the neutral country of the united states during world war ii now the united states in 1941 obviously preferred the ally power but they didn't join the war until the attack at pearl harbor But would you look at the United States in 1941 and say, if you haven't joined us, you must be with the Axis powers? I don't I don't think that it's that simplistic. I think it's much more nuanced than that. That was just something that I was pondering when I heard this. Let's continue. About that. So it seems that we have now forgotten what exactly happened on 9-11, what that experience was like, what that experience meant in terms of foreign policy. I think we've forgotten it on the left. I think that many people have forgotten it on the right because it has been nearly 20 years since that happened. And people are starting to view 9-11 as this historic aberration as opposed to, as I mentioned, an outgrowth of an isolationist and, and retreat-based foreign policy. We'll talk. So like I said before, you're going to hear this several times from Ben Shapiro. I find it so disingenuous from him. Ben makes several references to like this growing sentiment of isolationist foreign policy in this segment. And it's obvious that he says this, he says it specifically about individuals who may hold a negative view on the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
So, I mean, newsflash, the majority of Americans hold a negative view against those wars and for good reason. The American people were for going to war against the people that attacked us on 9-11. That's a fact. And it's a justified reason to go to war. No one argues that. What the American people are against, the majority of American people, they're against what it turned into. The American people were lied to about this war. This war turned into a nation-building campaign and has been directly responsible for the greatest expansion in government power in the history of our country. And to make sure that the American people bought into it, they lied about WMDs, they lied about Saddam Hussein's involvement with Al-Qaeda, and they lied about Saudi Arabia's involvement in the attacks on 9-11. Guess how many hijackers were from Afghanistan and Iraq? Zero. None of them. Most of them were from Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Ben's done this before. I've heard him say this before. He conflates people who hold a non-intervention view as isolationist. It's kind of a cheap, simple way to kind of prod at him and, and, and kind of launch an attack without fully outright saying it. He, he, he just lumps these people in. If you, if you're non-interventionist, you don't want to go to war, then you're an isolationist. Ben's obviously a smart and highly educated guy. He knows what he knows. There's a clear difference between the two. Uh, myself and a vast majority of the United States hold a non-interventionist view on in, in foreign policy. That's a fact. The majority of the United States, I believe, holds that view. How do I know this? Because the American people have consistently voted for the candidates who hold anti-war and non-interventionist views. Think about it. Look back at the campaigns Bill Clinton ran. Look at the pre-9-11 George W. Bush campaigns. They ran on anti-war and non-interventionist. Stop getting entangled in foreign conflicts. Look at Obama's campaign in 2008. He ran as One America. One America. Not getting involved in foreign wars. We just got over Bush. He wanted to bring the troops home. The people voted him in. Look at Trump's campaign in 2016. All of them campaigned on stopping foreign conflicts and focusing more on on our efforts here at home. Now, did any of them keep their promises? No, they're politicians. They lied. But that does not discount the fact that the American people have consistently chosen a candidate that holds non-interventionist views to lead their country. So just because I hold these views in no way makes me an isolationist. I value free trade. I value less restricted immigration. But just because I hold a negative view on the longest war in the history of the United States, and because I'm not a fan of a war that cost trillions of dollars, killed over a million people, and has accomplished virtually nothing, I'm an isolationist. So nice try, Ben. But conflating those things to further your war hawking, John Bolton style foreign policy just isn't going to work. Look, even looking at the comments on his episode, even your own fans strongly disagree with you on this one. So I guess the facts just don't care about your feelings. Let's move on. Let's be real about this. The fact is that the United States' actions in the aftermath of 9-11 did make America safer. They did make America safer. You know, we can talk (laughs) as much as we want about how... 9-11 was an aberration, a uniquely spectacular attempt to commit terrorism in the United States. But the fact is that I remember in the aftermath of 9-11, there was serious fear of a follow-on attack. That fear remained for years. There was serious fear that al-Qaeda would be able to pull off another mass casualty attack in the United States. And it took actually until the rise of ISIS for us to see similar mass casualty attacks in the West. And that was a full decade after 9-11. And that was, again, because the United States and its allies started to retrench from the world. They started to move away from engagement with the world. Okay. Got to cover this one. So story time. All right. It's funny. He brings up ISIS because boy, this is a good story here. So he says that ISIS was created because the U S and allies backed off from the middle East. So for those that don't know that that's not what happened. That's not how ISIS was birthed. Okay, it's like Ben believes ISIS was born just out of thin air and the absence of the United States in the Middle East caused ISIS to be born. 
Nothing caused ISIS to be born. It just happened because we left. That was the only reason that they came up. So let me tell you the real reason why ISIS was born. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this story because a lot of people don't know and they may not know. ISIS was created explicitly because we were there. Our government under Obama started arming and funding Al-Qaeda rebels in Syria. Now, Al-Qaeda was the terrorist group that did 9-11. So, Obama committed treason for knowingly arming and funding a known enemy of the United States. Obama should be held accountable. And if he was, he would likely be given the death penalty. You know who else is accountable? Trump. Trump has continued the practice. They both have committed treason. So this is what this is this is what happened. The government started arming and funding and training Al-Qaeda to fight Iran in Syria. That's right. We we fully supported them and even sent the CIA to train radical Islamic terrorists. I'm not making this up. You can research it for yourself. The CIA, we sent them to go train Al-Qaeda to fight in Syria. We're on the side of the terrorist organization that attacked us in the first place. There are photos of John McCain standing with Al-Qaeda leaders. And for those that like John McCain, he played an enormous part in this whole story, by the way. He's another disgusting, treasonous war criminal. This is just the truth. Look it up for yourself. This is your government. So... After this, some of the Al-Qaeda rebels started to question the group's efforts and causes, okay? They, they wanted to start an Islamic state. And so uh, the, the Al-Qaeda group, the Al-Qaeda leaders, told these kind of uh, individual rebels that they needed to get in line and to follow orders. So these rebels said, screw you. We're going to go do our own thing. We're going to go start an Islamic state, like the Quran says, So these rebels left with a huge chunk of the radicals from Al-Qaeda, picked up all the American weapons and vehicles that were given to them, and boom, ISIS is born. With funds, weapons, vehicles. That's why you saw all uh, all the pictures when ISIS was first starting to get uh, news coverage. You saw all the pictures of ISIS driving around in American vehicles and using American weapons. They're like, how are they getting all these weapons and vehicles? Oh, because we were arming and supplying Al-Qaeda, and that's where they came from. But yeah, according to Ben, ISIS was just born out of thin air because we reduced the war efforts in the Middle East. It's exactly the opposite. Our our involvement there led directly to ISIS being born. So what a terrible, horrible, and dangerous lie to spew. This is just, it's wild to me that this is said. Man. Uh, Another story that I did want to cover, and, and, and this is covered later on in uh, Ben Shapiro's episode as well. Uh, John Bolton. (laughs) Oh boy. You know, John Bolton, when you see that mustache, John Bolton is out as national security advisor of the United States. So this is a very good thing, right? So Donald Trump tweeted this. This is the the announcement. This happened uh, on September the 10th. Donald Trump tweeted, I informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration, and therefore I asked John for his resignation, which was given to me this morning. I thank John very much for his service, and I will be naming a new national security advisor next week. So (laughs) apparently, I was reading a little bit more into this story, (laughs) apparently, you know, I don't know why Trump brought him on in the first place. I, I, I don't get it, but Trump and Bolton didn't agree on much. So it's my understanding that they got into an argument and John Bolton, his story is that he resigned, went to meet with Trump about his resignation. Trump said, let's talk about it tomorrow. 
and then Trump went to Twitter to, to just so it looks like Trump fired him. I don't know which story is true. It, it's probably that one just because it sounds so much like Trump. Trump's like, you're not quitting. I'm firing you. So that's that's probably the, the true story about what happened. But regardless, it's a good thing. Let's listen to what Shapiro has to say. Trump had been inundated with complaints, according to officials. Pence and acting White House Chief of Staff Mick, Mul- Mick Mulvaney, who were awaiting Trump's arrival Monday afternoon in Fayetteville, found Boltingly increase- Bolton increasingly abrasive and self-promoting, which is to say the best way to get someone fired in the Trump administration is to go to Trump and say, that guy's stealing your limelight. He's on TV and he's undermining you. It's always to appeal to Trump's ego. Secretary <laughs> of State true. Pompeo and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin had told Trump that his national security advisor was not helping him, officials said. Bolton had even refused in recent weeks to go on television and defend the president's policies on Afghanistan and Russia. Bolton, the president felt, wasn't loyal. He wasn't on the team. Of course, it always comes down to that for President Trump. After Trump made his views known, Bolton offered to resign. According to Bolton, Trump insisted that they would discuss it the next day. It was the last time he saw the president. He had the meeting, thought about it for a few hours, especially since the president wasn't exactly begging him to stay on and he had had enough, said a person familiar with Bolton's thinking. On Tuesday morning, Bolton handed a two-sentence letter to an aide for delivery to Trump and left the building. I hereby resign effective immediately. Just before noon, Trump stole his thunder, announcing in a terse tweet that he had fired his third national security in a row. That'd be after Mike Flynn and H.R. McMaster. He said, I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. I will be naming a new national security advisor next week. And there was this whole debate that broke out over whether Bolton had resigned or whether Bolton was fired. Now, does this necessarily mean that Trump is shifting radically to the isolationist caucus when it comes to foreign policy? No, it doesn't, but it certainly provides an opening to a lot of the members of that caucus who seek to minimize America's presence on the world stage. Now, again, I'm not saying that's coming from a bad place for a lot of these folks. I'm not saying that Tucker, who tends to be on this side, or Rand Paul, who tends to be on this side, I'm not saying this is coming from a place that the American left is coming from, where they say that America's presence on the world stage provokes attacks against the United States and America is a force for nefarious ends in the world. I'm not saying any of that. I think that Tucker's basic perspective is that the United States should not be expending resources abroad that could be better spent at home. I think this is Rand Paul's perspective too, although more tinged with maybe a Ron Paul sentiment. And Tucker's perspective is if we bring those folks home from distant lands, we can build up the United States. If somebody hits us, we hit them back. And that's pretty much how this works. You don't need an interventionist foreign policy. And that's a good faith argument. I would suggest that the aftermath of 9-11, that argument basically fell apart. But we're now 20 years distant from that. And so now there's a reconsideration of that argument. How does that argument fall apart? Like I I covered a little bit, but it's almost as if Ben thought the United States was just minding its own business, completely isolationist. We weren't involved in any kind of foreign entanglements. We weren't involved in any foreign politics whatsoever. We were just there minding our own business. And then we get attacked on 9-11, just out of the blue. I, I don't know how that argument doesn't hold water. Again, I would suggest Ben take into account America's involvement in the Middle East, specifically being referenced as a reason for the 9-11 attacks. This idea that they, quote, hate us because of our freedom or, or something like that, it doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't recall seeing the terrorists making a reference to the Constitution for their attacks. So John Bolton being out of the White House is a good thing. Now, why Trump holds some responsibility for his actions. Uh, I I don't know why Trump brought him on in the first place. It doesn't make any sense. But then again, who really understands Trump? The guy's impossible to figure out. I mean, really, the the guy's an enigma. Uh, Let's let's continue with uh, Shapiro. Maybe this was all interpersonal. That's my hope, is that this was all interpersonal. I fear that this is reflective of a move to the left by the Trump administration on foreign policy, or at least a move toward a more isolationist sentiment by the the Trump administration. So Tucker Carlson, to take an example, was celebrating Bolton's ouster last night. You can see he's very happy about all of this, is Tucker. Uh, And Tucker suggested, I think ridiculously, that Bolton is a man of the left, which is just bizarre and insane. Like, there's no evidence whatsoever that Bolton is a left winger. I mean, really, does the left love John Bolton? Because I'm missing it. If you're wondering why so many progressives are mourning Bolton's firing tonight, 
It's because Bolton himself fundamentally was a man of the left. There was not a human problem John Bolton wasn't totally convinced could be solved with the brute force of government. That's an assumption of the left, not the right. Don't let the mustache fool you. John Bolton was one of the most progressive people in the Trump administration. And by the way, naturally, once he was ensconced there, Bolton promoted Obama loyalists within the National Security Council. That shouldn't surprise you either. All okay, true. I, I don't know what, what this is referring to. I mean, seriously, John Bolton is a man of the left, and the left was mourning him yesterday. No, the left was just happy there was chaos inside the Trump administration. I don't know anybody on the left <laughs> who's thrilled about John Bolton. I mean, do you remember how upset they were when John Bolton was hired? They went nuts. They went nuts. Rand Paul, of course, plays the same tune. He says that the threat of war is diminished with Bolton gone. Let me just make something clear here. Hey, this notion that John Bolton is going around stumping for war, if that were the case, wouldn't there have been a little more war under John Bolton? Well, he, oh, my God. Ben. Ben, 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 Ben. So you don't actually think that John Bolton made a name for himself as a known proponent of war. <laughs> Dude, I've covered what just in the few episodes that I've done in this podcast, I've covered several stories of this guy pushing Trump hard for war. I, I guess that this idea that John Bolton loves war was just born out of thin air, just like ISIS was. <laughs> The truth is, John Bolton has always loved war. He, he's always pushed for war. And his dream has always been war with Iran. So this isn't some made-up idea, Ben. It's not some left-wing talking point that John Bolton loves war. He's a proponent for war. How do I know this? Well, here's John Bolton in 2017 promising regime change in Tehran. In Iran. He said, before 2019, we're going to celebrate regime change here in Tehran. Listen to him. The behavior and the objectives of the regime are not going to change. And therefore, the only solution is to change the regime itself. And that's, and that's why, before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're going to celebrate regime change here in Tehran before 2019, I promise. Unless I'm not national security advisor by the end of 2019. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's so funny that Ben thinks that this is just like, he's like, I don't, I don't know where this idea comes from, that, that John Bolton is, is a war hawk. He's just beating his war drums all the time. I don't, I don't know where this comes from. Well, I covered a story just a few episodes ago about how Donald Trump himself teased Bolton about his war lust especially towards Iran. So during a White House Situation Room meeting last year, Trump reportedly said, quote, okay, John, let me guess, you want to nuke them all. <laughs> Trump has also been on record saying, and I quote, John has never seen a war he doesn't like. If it was up to him, he'd take on the whole world at one time. <laughs> so John Bolton is also a huge fan of the Iraq war, even though that war strengthened Iran more than ever in the region by getting rid of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a uh, was very hostile towards Iranian influence in the region, and he was the only thing balancing power in that area. So listen to this clip. This is a older clip, but Tucker Carlson had him on. I believe this was last year. Yeah, 2018. So listen to uh, Tucker Grill Bolton on this. So you've you've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria in. The so right off the bat, so you've advocated for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria. But John Bolton's, he, he I don't know where this idea comes from. John Bolton doesn't want war all the time. I don't know where, where does this idea come from? Besides him calling for regime change in virtually every country in the Middle East. I, I don't know where that comes from. The first two countries we've had regime change, and obviously it's been 
I'd say disaster. I think we no, agree. No, I, I don't agree with that. And, and let me let me. You don't think it's been a disaster? No, because no, to not a disaster. argue that you have to argue. Let's just take Iraq to begin with. You have to argue that everything that followed from the fall of Saddam Hussein followed inevitably, solely, and unalterably from the decision to overthrow him. And that's simply not I, true. I would never argue that. I'm, you, I'm merely arguing the you, macro you have picture to. since you, well, you, you just said that Iran is the single greatest threat to us and to that region. I think you'll concede that Saddam was the greatest counterbalance to Iran and they were empowered by his, by his fall. So. I think it's fair to say if you think Iran is the real threat that way, you know, it's kind of hard to defend that decision, I, right? No, because I think your analysis is simple-minded, frankly. Okay. The <laughs> Iranian threat, which stems from the revolution of 1979. Yeah, why did that revolution happen, by the way? Oh, because we overthrew their government and installed a puppet ourselves? Oh, okay, all right, let's continue. Uh, was underway quite apart from what Saddam Hussein was doing. The Iranians have been trying to get nuclear weapons for 25 so years. So you don't think the Saddam fall of Saddam Hussein's, made Iran stronger? I think it made uh, it, the the fall of Saddam, no, did not make Iran stronger. What Bull. made Iran stronger ultimately was the withdrawal of American forces uh, in 2011. So, so, so he says that it wasn't Saddam, us taking out Saddam Hussein, the only balancing power there in the region. It was because we left. So his idea of fixing it is permanent occupation. And really, that's what it boils down to. Permanent occupation. We're never going to leave. It's just how it is. We have to be there forever. That's the plan. Topple governments stay there forever. Permanent occupation of the world. That's John Bolton's plan. If you, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're the only person who thinks that. You're the only person I have met who thinks that. What would you say if you could sum up the one lesson from what has happened in Iraq? What would it be? Well, I think the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, that military action, was a resounding success. Uh, I think the mistakes that were made subsequently, uh, setting up the coalition provisional authority and others that followed from it, uh, are lessons about what to do after a regime is overthrown. But I'd also point out, because of President Bush's surge policy, uh, when his administration ended, uh, stability had returned to Iraq. It was not a place you'd go for vacation. Right. Uh, but he turned it over to Barack Obama, and it fell apart subsequently. And the point I think you need to understand... Yeah is that life is complicated in the Middle East. And when you say, well, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein was a mistake, well, is simplistic. I, I would argue that I'm the one who understands how complicated it is, but just my view. It's, it's your long experience in foreign policy. I know. <laughs> Better record than yours, I would say. But thank you, Ambassador. <laughs> Better record than yours, I would say. <sighs> so, yeah, that guy was National Security Advisor. For what reason? I have no idea. Anyway, let's move on. I'm done with Ben Shapiro. I'm done with John Bolton. Finally, we're done with John Bolton. For now. <laughs> we may get Bon Jolton here in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? Maybe he'll shave his mustache, put on a hat. He'll be back in. I don't know. Let's move on to the next story I wanted to cover. Um, I talked about this a little bit on Facebook. Um but the Trump administration is moving to ban vaping. <laughs> so, yes, you heard me correct. The Trump administration wants to ban vaping. Um, why do they want to do this? Well, six people have died. And while I agree it's, it's terrible that six people have died, I couldn't help but wonder, how? How did these people die from vaping? I, lots of people do it. Six people died. I want to know how. Well, I did some research and it turns out that the people getting sick and the ones who unfortunately died were using illegal vape cartridges with black market unapproved THC oils. So if if I got this straight, let me get this straight. Six people died from using illegal unapproved oils. And Trump wants to ban vaping completely. All right. As a response, six people die. Just ban it. Ban it all. It's too dangerous. So if you haven't already put it together, it begs the question, how would this accomplish anything? 
How would banning legal, approved, safe vaping products protect people from already illegal, unapproved, black market vaping products? So the answer is it doesn't. In fact, banning those safe legal products, get this, get this, see if you can follow me here. Banning those safe legal products will only drive more people to, that's right, the illegal dangerous products. This is such retarded logic that even Don Lemon agrees with Trump on it. You know it's stupid if Don Lemon does a segment and agrees with Trump on it. Listen to this. I want to call your attention to this. There was also some actual governing going on today. Really. The administration moving to ban flavored e-cigarettes after reports of some 450 cases of dangerous lung illness. At least six people have died. We have a problem in our country. It's a new problem. It's a problem that nobody really thought about too much uh, a few years ago, and it's called vaping, especially vaping as it pertains. By the way, I, I know it's crazy, and I should expect stuff like this. But if you were to tell me that by the end of 2019, the president of the United States would be talking about vaping, I would have called you a liar. But... I, this is the Trump presidency. You never know what subject is going to come up next. I just find it so funny that the president of the United States is talking about vaping. It's something nobody talked about before. Okay. Nobody talked about it before. It's vaping. Pains to innocent children. People are dying with vaping. Well, the president is right <laughs> to take action on e-cigarettes. Did you hear what I said? I said the president is right to take action on e-cigarettes. Six. Oh God, Trump, Don Lemon's agreeing with you. Oh no. People have died and that is a tragedy. We need to know more about all of this, but we cannot ignore what we know about other threats to the public as well. Oh, here we 38 go. 38 people died in mass shootings in this country just last month. Here we go. What about them? Here we go. What are you prepared to do on guns, on background checks? What are you prepared to announce? So I just spoke with Senator Toomey and Senator Murphy and Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin. Just had a long talk with them just before this meeting, just hung up. And we are working very, very hard together, all of us. So we're seeing if we can come up with something that's acceptable to everybody. Something that's acceptable? Okay. How about this? How about something that actually does something to protect Americans from the next enraged person with a gun? The House Judiciary Committee voting today to approve a red flag bill and a ban on high capacity magazines. But those still have to be voted on by the full House. And the chances that the Senate will take up any gun legislation are pretty slim, given that Mitch McConnell has said that he won't put a bill on the floor unless the president assures him that he'll sign it. Well, the president has already said that he likes red flag laws, so you might get that. But this this whole mess about vaping, this let me tell you guys this. This is purely the tobacco lobby trying to take back its slipping grasp on the marketplace. 100% all this is is the tobacco lobby. And it's so blatantly obvious. Tobacco kills 8 million people a year worldwide, 480,000 a year in the U.S. alone. And cigarettes are totally legal. But six people die from using illegal vaping oils and vaping is banned. I find it absolutely absurd to propose a ban on vaping while Cigarettes are legal. Prescription pills, poor diet, like fast food, sodas. All of these things are illegal and they take way more lives. There's 88,000 people that die of alcohol-related deaths a year in the United States. 130,000 die due to uh, prescription pills. 600,000 deaths a year are linked to heart disease and poor diet. Overconsumption of sodas and fast food, clogging arteries. And of course, the 480,000 for traditional cigarettes. So this, this whole game that they're playing about how they're, they're, they're wanting to save lives from vaping. Vaping's taking too many lives. 
Legal vaping. We didn't know it was so dangerous. This is a blatant example of crony capitalism. Big tobacco lobbying big government to legislate their way back into the market. That's all it is. Now, I believe that people own their own body and they have every right to put whatever they choose into it. Even though that many people die of all the things I listed before, I don't think any of that should be illegal. That's, that's why I hold, if you've listened to my episode on the war on drugs, that's why I hold those opinions. I believe, ultimately, your body is yours. If you want to put something in it, however good or bad it may be, that is your right. I think that's a pretty basic right. If you don't own your body, what do you own? So, I, I think it's up to you and you alone to protect yourself. But this is purely a case of crony capitalism. So blatantly obvious. But I thought that was a uh, a funny yet, in a way, pretty sad story to end on. <laughs> Moving to ban vaping because people used illegal vaping products. That logic. That logic. Anyway... Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to like and subscribe to us on uh, Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. I want to boost up our five-star reviews on uh, iTunes, if I can, Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you haven't already, like our Facebook page. Send me some stories. If you want me to cover some different stories, send them to me. I'll be happy to cover them. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Freedom Strips. Bye. Bye.